The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Catechism, Lord's Day 7. There is a handout in the back. If you didn't get a handout for yourself, Mr. Woodruff would like nothing more than to make sure that you got a copy. As I'm sure you saw in your inbox this week, Pastor Brian is going to be on a writing sabbatical, so he's got a couple of projects that he's working on. One would be taking the material from the book of Ecclesiastes and putting it into book form. This has been something he's wanted to do for, I think, since he preached it the first time. So uh, be praying for Pastor Brian as he is uh, working hard away at that. He well, won't be here this Sunday. I think he and Ariel and the grandkids are over in Sacramento. So let's make sure we pray for them. And then uh, kind of a snapshot of the next couple of weeks regarding Sunday school. I finished the uh, second London faster than I think Pastor Brian thought we would. I go slightly faster than he does. So... Um, we will look at the Heidelberg today. Next week, we will have Mark Chansky uh, teaching Sunday school. He'll be with us for Sunday school the morning and the afternoon and for men's breakfast the day before. So we're getting our, I guess, money's worth out of Mark. And then the following week is the anniversary weekend, and I believe it's Eric Elliott. No, not Eric Elliott. Robert Elliott. Eric might be very surprised to find that he's teaching Sunday school. <laughs> Robert Elliott uh, will be coming in to uh, speak to us uh, through that weekend on taking the gospel to a post-Christian world. That'd be excellent. I, I believe he's scheduled for that. And then after those two guest speakers, we will begin a Sunday school series on evangelism and apologetics, basically saying how do everyday Christians share the gospel with the people that they run into in their everyday kind of life? So don't think that this is going to be super high level uh, academic stuff. It is actually, we want it to be very scriptural, but very practical with how do I speak to those in my life, whether they're family members or coworkers or neighbors or people I don't even know. Like, how do we work our way into people's lives that we don't have access to at the moment. So uh, practical ways to do that. And then with the uh, apologetic side, we thought it'd be really helpful to work through how do, we, how do we think through different worldviews. So when we're talking to someone and they're, they're giving us kind of pieces of what they believe, we can kind of zero in uh, on, on where they're at and then knowing where the gospel could be most pointedly applied to their life. So uh, we'll, we'll do the basics of that, and then I think what we want to do is look at the um, probably the four or five most prevalent uh, false religions that you'd have in the valley here, and give you just a, like a one-week glimpse at Mormonism. How do we make heads or tails of what someone who's Mormon believes, and then how do we apply the gospel pointedly in that situation? And so I think it'd be very, very helpful, very practical, uh, and beneficial to the church. If you would look uh, at your handout, we, it's been a few months since we've done uh, a selection from the Heidelberg. The last one that we did was Heidelberg Lord's Day 6. I know that's shocking given that we're at 7 right now. 
Didn't see that one coming. So, uh, by way of review, question 16, I, I only gave you the questions, not the answers. Uh, the questions pointed out, what kind of a mediator are we going to need if we have any hope of salvation? So, question 16, why must this mediator be truly human and truly righteous? Let's take the truly human part. Why did this mediator between God and man need to be a man? Thoughts or opinions? Jesse. Yes, so if you're going to stand in a man's place, you kind of got to be a man. If it was a lesser creature, uh, there would be an inequity of value, for lack of a better term. You can't, that's one of the primary reasons why offering a lamb doesn't pay for the sins of a human. So there's going to be one really primary thing that makes humans different, which is what? We have a soul. That is uh, definitely part of it. We're created in God's image, 100% right. Uh, We are image bearers. And to my knowledge, the only ones who do it, right? So the creation doesn't uh, mirror it. In fact, it's not even said of the angels that they would reflect God's image like that. They reflect his glory and other things, but only man is made in the image of God. So there's something very unique about humanity so that lesser creatures cannot uh, stand in their place and you can't like create an angelic being that's going to work out. A man must suffer for man's sins. Uh, why must he be truly righteous if he's going to stand in our place? Jesse. Yes, and how long would it take for him to pay for his own sins? Eternity. So if you're paying for your own sins for an eternity, guess what you don't have a lot of time for? Paying for my sins. Yeah. So he has to be righteous if he's going to be acceptable and not have to suffer an eternity of hell for his own sins. And even one sin would result in an eternity of suffering for for that sin. So he must be human to stand in a human's place. He must be righteous so he doesn't suffer for his own sins. Uh, question 17, well, why must he also be God? Why can't he just be like this perfect man? Why does he also have to be God? What's that? There's no such thing as a perfect man? That's definitely related to it. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're going to receive, if you're going to receive in for, I mean, again, it is hard for us to grasp at these categories, right? An infinite amount of wrath received within time and space and not be destroyed. You have to be a divine person, right? So, such a thing would, would destroy anyone who wasn't uh, also divine. So you've got to be man, got to be righteous, has to be God, otherwise be destroyed. Uh, question 18, who is this mediator? Truly God and at the same time truly human and also truly righteous. You know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. How do you know this? I did uh, clip the first part of the answer because I think it's so good. The Holy Gospel told me so. So this God who has created you in his image has revealed himself that you would know him. And one of the things that he's revealed, I think the, the one thing to which all revelation is aiming, 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like he revealed lots of stuff and Jesus was in the midst of it. No, actually, all that he reveals is aimed at the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason why everything we, we teach or preach around here is wrapped up in who? Well, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, we have this crazy idea that it's all about him. Even from the very beginning, the eye of God is on the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ or bringing glory to Christ. So that lands us quite logically on the doorstep of Lord's Day 7. So that being said, this resume, if you will, on who this mediator must be, we know his name, we know what he's like, we know he's fully God, fully man, 100% and 100%, and yet not 200%, but somehow in this marvelous thing called the hypostatic union, gloriously, perfectly both. There is a logical question for the thinking reader that is surfaced in question 20. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? You've got to follow the logic there. We've looked at in uh, Lord's Days 3 through 5, I think, that in Adam, all perished. So Adam as our federal head sinned in the garden, and because of that, he plunged all his sons and all his daughters into that sin. So like in that representative sense, were you and I present in the garden? Yes, we were. Representatively, we were there. And Adam, falling into sin, drug the rest of humanity with him. So if he's the first Adam, and that's the effect that his, I know this is kind of a bigger word, federal headship had, does Christ's federal headship work the same way? So all die in Adam, Christ comes, all live in him. It, does it function on the same uh, principles in every degree? No. Does it function on the same principles in many degrees? Yes, it does. So if you look at the, the answer there, first off, no. <laughs> well, I guess you didn't have to say much more than that. But then it specifies only those who are grafted into Christ receive all of his benefits by true faith. So let's take that a look at that piece at a time. How is Adam's guilt... Uh, for lack of a better term, transferred to you. Well, you were born into this world. You're, you're a human being, right? M- most of us? Good. Still awake. So, by nature of being born as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, you have Adam's guilt. He is your federal head in that sense. That would be, for, for lack of just a better term, an, a natural birth kind of a thing is, is what gets us into Adam. What's the thing, for lack of a better term, that gets us into Christ? Is it, I am born into the world? Does that get me into Christ? No. Does, now this would be answered differently by some of our brothers and sisters in the faith, does being born into a Christian family get me into Christ? I don't believe so, no. Does being born of the Spirit get us into Christ? Yes, 
Yes, it does. Is everyone born of the Spirit? No. So how is, what language does the uh, confession use? Well, it says like those who are grafted into Christ. What, what kind of uh, language would, would that word grafting be? What, what theological truth are they pointing at? I've used the word new birth, so I've already taken that one off the table. You have to use a different one. Grace does it, I'm going to argue, Tony. Yeah, so. Uh huh. A hundred percent. Yeah, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, you are the branches. And so all those who. We'll just use that word, grafted in, uh, then have life in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's, the, what's a theological word we would use for that? It's a, I know you wanted grammar early in the morning. That's related and can't be separated from it, but it's a prepositional phrase made up of two beautiful short little words that just give me goosebumps all through the book of Ephesians. In Christ, or what we call union with Christ. So when the Spirit of God raises you from the dead, or what we call regeneration, makes you alive, you can't, we can't even describe it without using that phrase, makes you alive in Christ, raises you from the spiritual dead, and then, for, for lack of it, we could use the word grafts us in. I prefer the, the word he, he knits us. Not, it's not what grandma does while she's bored and watching TV, but... He, he knits us inseparably to Christ. So by nature of being raised up from the spiritual dead, that, that has consequences. When the Spirit of God makes you alive, he then knits you inseparably to the Lord Jesus Christ. So once a man, woman, or child is, is regenerated, raised up from the dead, they actually enter into a union with Christ that this is amazing, will never be separated. Once that new life is started and you enter that fellowship, that, that koinonia, that union with Christ, never will it dissolve. Death can't do it. Your enemies can't do it. A sword, nakedness, peril, plague. I mean, just think of the way that that Paul in Romans 8 is arguing, he uses the phrase, what could separate us from Christ's love? But it's, it's, he's talking about the same thing. Can anything separate you from the union that you have in Christ once you have union with Christ? No, not a thing. So how does Christ become our representative head in a sense? Or, or how are we, we born into that? Well, we are grafted in by the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about the work of the Spirit here under question 21. But, but that is how someone, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, gets into Christ. So we're all, we, we have gotten into Adam by being born. How do we get into the second Adam? Well, it's through rebirth. It's through union with Christ. That, that's how you become uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes your head. He becomes a greater second Adam. And we receive all of his benefits 
in that engrafting and by the means of true faith. So, when we think about, let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead here. I probably am, but it doesn't matter. So, when we think about Christ dying on the cross and forgiving my sins, or your sins, we need to at some point wrestle with the question, well, when, when do those benefits become mine? Some have, and I think that this is, I think that this is a wrong way of answering it. Some have said like, well, I was elect before the foundations of the world, which I would agree with. Don't worry, I, I agree that that is biblical. And Christ died 2,000 years ago. I also agree with that. And he fully satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf. So far, I'm three for three with you. But then they would think that those benefits became theirs back then. And in a sense, and I've heard some folks say this, I've never been lost. Do you you see how that, that, there's that last jump that I go, yeah, no, I'm not going with you on that one. Does Paul talk that way? No, Paul actually says we were dead in our sins and trespasses and transgressions. Paul says in uh, the book of Colossians, you were in the kingdom of darkness and you've been transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son. There actually is a change that happens. So there is, there really is a movement in the Christian life that it's, it's not make-believe, it, it's very, very real. We were sons and daughters of wrath. And if you're in Christ, you are no longer a son or daughter of wrath. You are now a son and daughter of God. And that's a real change that's happened. Well, the question is like, okay, so when did that happen? I know I was elected before the foundations of the world. I know that Christ died satisfactorily for me 2,000 years ago. But when do those benefits become mine? But actually, I think the answer is the same thing that we've been pointing to all this morning. They actually happen when the Spirit makes you alive and knits you to who? Christ. And in that union, then all of those benefits become yours. So in a real sense, were we, were we on our way to destruction in this life before the Spirit raises us? Yes, we were. I don't know how else to read the Apostle Paul. In a real sense, in time and space, was there a, a, a time where the Spirit made you alive? Yes. Do some of you know exactly when that happened? Yeah, yeah, I actually think that some of you do. Do others of us not really know? Yeah. But does that negate the fact that it happened? Not at all. There are, there are times where the person is like what we'd call radically converted, which I, I, th- I think it's a miss, that's a bad way to say it. Seems like there's like the amazing ones. I'm like, ah, the normal ones. Like, no, every saved sinner is a radical, miraculous transformation. Now, there are times where someone goes like, I, I know, I was on the way to hell. And then God grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, ah, you're coming with me. And that's pretty obvious when it happens. There's other times, especially those of us who grew up in the church, where there's... 
you, as you learn the gospel, you affirm the gospel. And I know I was born a lost sinner, and, and at some point in all of this, God opened my eyes to see. Does that make you any less saved? No, not at all. In fact, I'm really thankful for occasions where God saves our kids really young. We should want that for all of them. Does it make for a more boring testimony? Uh, maybe in some people's uh, estimation, perhaps. I hope all of our kids have the testimony of, I, I came to Christ early, and I didn't live long in the world. I pray that all the time for my children uh, and for your children as well. We don't want our kids long in the world. But that's when those saving benefits become ours. So those grafted into Christ, union language, those who have union with Christ, then receive all of the benefits and what is that mechanism or the, the bonds that bind one? It, it says it's faith. We believe that we are, it's not the one covered up, it's that one, saved by faith alone. We don't believe that we're saved by like faith, plus you got to work for it. We believe in faith alone. Faith alone is the means that, uh, by which God uses to save his people. So, the most obvious question that we should be asking at this point is if you're saved by faith alone, you are a, re- a recipient of the benefits of Christ by faith alone, what should be the one question you're asking? What's faith? It would be helpful to know. <laughs> if we believe that that is like an indispensable key for salvation and the way by which or the means by which we receive the saving benefits of Christ, well, it would be really helpful to know what faith is. Now, faith is a word that we use here probably multiple times every single Sunday. But if I were to ask you, like, well, define faith. You'd be like, ah, believing? You're like, that's just the verbal form of faith. You cheated. So in in Greek, it's the same word. You could say, I have faith, the noun, or I am faithing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's to put it into a verb. I know you wanted more grammar today. But in English, there are two different words. It's the same thing. Believing and faith. Faith is, or believing is faith put into action there. What is it? What, what would compose it? Some would throw out like words like, I trust him. Yeah, that's an indispensable piece of it. And if you've noticed in your handout, I'm learning because I'm asking you guys questions. I see everyone's eyes jot down. Oh, it's that. So now there's like blanks, like the kids' notes. I'm a slow learner, but a learner nonetheless. What are the key aspects of faith? If you look at question 20 in its answer, you should stumble upon easily two of the three. What's the first one? Knowledge. Can I have faith in, one, in something or someone that I do not know? I know it's, it's, it's a cheesy I, like illustration, but that has never stopped us before. Do you have faith, deep abiding trust, in an Elkrick? In an Elkrick. No, because you don't know what an Elkrick is. It's circle spelled backwards. That's all it is. So now you're, oh, I know what that is. How would you have faith in that? That's besides the point. 
You can't have faith in something you do not know. You can't. Faith, uh, by its nature, requires an object. If I do not know the object, how can I even begin to have the most remote aspects of faith? You can't. Is knowledge enough? Just simply that I know it, is that enough? Tony? Ascent. We're getting there. You're jumping ahead. Consider yourself rebuked. No, she's... Uh, you're right. You see exactly where I'm going, but let's park on knowledge for a minute because sometimes we make a grave mistake. We think knowing the gospel in its facts is the same as believing the gospel. It's not the same. I'm a huge nerd on a number of levels. One of them is I'm really interested in like Norse mythology. So I I, I could tell you, Johnny's already rolling his eyes because he's had to suffer some of this already. Do I know aspects of Odin and Thor and Loki and Freya and all that? Yeah. Do I believe that? You're like, I don't know. I'm wondering now. (laughs) I'm hoping he says no. Yes. My sins have found me out. (laughs) So uh, is knowing knowledge the same thing as believing it? No, but it is an indispensable detail. So if I'm going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, must I know key facts about him? Yeah. Is it indispensable that someone must, uh, how, like Paul says, how can they believe if they've never even heard? So that is the importance of the gospel going forth into people's lives. They need to know who God is, that he has a law, that we've broken that law, and that he sent Christ in the flesh to die, to rise, to save, all of that. That's needful in faith. Now there's another aspect. It's the aspect that I lack with regards to Norse mythology, even though it's interesting. What's that aspect, Tony? You said it. Assent, agree with, or I would probably use the word conviction. I, 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 I not only have an understanding of it, but I believe it to be true. The belief doesn't make it true. Like you can believe in false stuff all the time. That doesn't make it true. But I, I'm, I'm convinced in the inner man that that is true, that it's real. That, that it's not make-believe. Eddie. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, since you brought up James, there's a particular group of folks in James that have a tremendous knowledge of God. Negative. What's that? I think, I think Eddie's got it. They tremble because of this knowledge. Demons. Demons know a whole lot about God. Are they convinced in the inner man and believe him and trust him? No. So knowledge is not enough. But yeah, the idea of pledging allegiance too. Absolutely, this conviction. So you can see it there. Certain knowledge whereby I hold for true. There's that kind of, it's a bit clumsy, but it's a way that they're talking about that middle piece. 
So knowledge would be the first, hold for true or uh, assent or um, conviction. I believe it's true. Now, there is a third piece that I think, I don't think they uh, pointedly bring it out, but we will. And that's the idea of uh, trust that would ensue. I now live in light of that. So faith that just goes like, I know it. I'm convinced it's true. Are you going to live differently? No, I'm cool. That's not faith. James also has a few words to say about a certain kind of faith that says like, I know, I'm convinced. I don't live like it. It's a faith that doesn't work, right? So this, if you were to define faith, these would be kind of the, the essential big three pieces. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. That's kind of how we would say so now. Next time someone says, what is faith? You can back, let me tell you. It is knowledge, conviction, trust. Um, it is something that is also lived out. One of the ways whoops, that we, or one of the places that we see this most pointedly, it's going to be over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is, now if you, if you could listen with those three uh, categories or words in your mind, I think you're going to see how it works its way out in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old did receive their commendation by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, it goes on through Abel, Enoch, drop down to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, there's that verbal form of faith, must, they must faith um, that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Often with regards to faith, I've used an analogy for years and I've realized like it falls way short while I was thinking about using it again. But I'll use it again and show you how it's way short. We often use the idea of a chair, like do I know the chair exists? Yes. Do I, am I convinced it can hold up uh, my, my glory, my weightiness? I sure hope so. Those legs are steel, and if it doesn't, I need to diet. So I have knowledge, I have trust, I, I have conviction, and then to trust it would actually to be to put my carcass onto that. There's one key difference. Like Those are all the elements, sure, but there's a key difference. And it was really teased out in, uh, in the definition in Hebrews. It's a big difference. Not seen. That's the difference, I think. I can see the chair. Can we see right now with our earthly eyes that God does reward those who are faithful to him? No. Was I there when he created the world? No. But does that make it any less real? No. You can really see this uh, distinction when you're talking to someone uh, evangelistically. And you can even convince them to, I mean, it, it even happened quite recently. I was talking to someone about what the, the basically, what is the Bible? 
and like all of the amazing things about the Bible, 1,500 years, 40 authors, all of these locations, and it's transmission through time, and like, isn't the Bible wonderful? And they had like no, no argument like against it. They didn't see faith in it. There wasn't that last piece of trust. There was a, a knowledge, some semblance of like, I wouldn't know how to argue against that, so maybe it is true. But it needs to be much more than simply that. So where does this faith come from? Look at the answer on uh, question 21. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for true, there's that conviction. Now, man, this is convicting. All that God has revealed to us in his word that's a big scope. It's one thing to believe that God's word, well, is God's word. And it is a, another thing, and a further thing, to believe all that is in that. I mean, how many times have you personally, or, or me, you know, believe the gospel, and then, you know, the first time you run into election, you're like, wait a minute. Or you run into what the Bible says about homosexuality, right? There's, there's a lot of Christians that really struggle with that one, with, with believing that that is, is part of what God has revealed. I mean, there's lots of times where we run into stuff in God's word that's tough. Faith believes this is the word and believes all that is in that word, and an assured confidence, right? We've already talked about that. Now, notice where, I think, and this is where the uh, catechism tells us where faith is from, which the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit works by the gospel in my heart. So who is the one who does work faith in the life of a believer? Holy Spirit. Um, Is faith something that lies like dormant in you and the spirit's like wake up wake it up no okay good i'm glad you said no where does faith come from if you were to show me that in the scriptures where would you point to ephesians 2 8 and 9 pastor brian just talked about it on wednesday for by grace you've been saved through faith and that and the way that that is stated in the greek is like uh, that and this package deal of grace, faith, and God's saving work. Those are gifts of God. So God gave, gives it to us. Um, I have no other re- explanation. Number one, I see it in the scripture, so we believe it. The other is there's no reasonable explanation why some folks get saved. Like me. Or like you. You take a hell-bound rebel who hates God. And then at some point in their life, they now trust him to save their souls. That did not arise within them. That doesn't. God did that. God gives by the Spirit faith and trust in him, and he works it. How does he work it? There are means that he uses. Stated right there in front of you. Through the gospel, correct. We can read right in front of us. Now, where does he work it in? In our hearts. What 
does the catechism mean? And it's going to be the same thing that the, the, the Bible means in my heart. What, what do we mean when we use that? We use it all the time. What do we mean he works it in my heart? I don't think, I'll take one of the answers away from you. I don't think he's like that muscular, gnarled thing in your chest that does that like a thousand times a day. Probably way more than a thousand times. You'd probably be really lethargic if it was only a thousand. So what do we mean if we don't mean the physical organ? Because the Hebrews thought it was the kidneys, which is unique. Um, Jolene. So you are 100% correct. It involves our, our affections. It involves more than that, but it, it, it certainly does not involve less than that. Well, you just stole the whole thing, Johnny. Robbing me of fun. Yeah, the inner man. So our thoughts, our, our willing, and our, our affecting, our loving, our, our emotive, like... All that is meant in the inner man, John is correct, that's what we mean by the heart. We, we kind of use it symbolically of like the whole man, not just our feelings. It's not like God works it in our feelings, but not our mind, or in our mind, but not a feeling. It, it actually, all of it is bound up in one, uh, one big thing, which we call the inner man or the heart. So the Holy Spirit works that in us, in the inner man, so that we believe, and I think it's, you would kind of know that that happened, that there was a major shift in your thinking and believing and willing and wanting. Like it's not like something that could happen to you. It's not like you could be a carrier of faith, but not know it. Remember like early in, I don't want to use COVID as an example, but there was like all that stuff earlier about you could be like a car- an asymptomatic carrier and like mass spreading it. Which is like now we're like, wow, that was crazy. That feels like a long time ago. Uh, it's not like you're that way with faith. Like you're like this person who has all this faith, but like, I don't know, you're an asymptomatic faither. Like that's not, that's not a thing. You tend to know when God makes you a new creature, more or less. Um, and so that's what we mean by the inner man. He works it in who and what we are. Now notice, I think this, this next part is fascinating. Not... Uh, only to others, but to me also. Why would they say that? I think this takes a little bit of thinking on. Not only to me, other, to me, or not only to others, but to me also. Why go out of your way to say that? I'll let you stew on it while I drink coffee. Uh, Tony. Explain that more, because I, you, you, I think you've stumbled on a piece I wasn't thinking about, but it's a good one. You are correct. I was I was running down a different road, Chad. Hmm. I 
Another element I wasn't thinking about, but you are correct. Both of you, really good. This is why uh, involvement is so helpful. Mr. Palmer. Uh Uh-huh. You and I think alike. That might scare you. (laughs) He's going to go home and rethink about all of his life choices. Um, Isn't it easier at times to think that God can save other people? but not necessarily me. I think, I think that that's actually a, a hang-up I bump into all the time talking with folks. They can believe that God is a full, free, gracious Savior, forgiving sin. But can he forgive my sin? It's so much easier for some odd reason to think he can be a sufficient, free Savior for someone else. Hard to believe he can be my Savior. I think that's exactly what they're pointing at. That there's faith not just for others, but to me also. There's a a warmth and a personalness to the Heidelberg, which is why it's called the Church's Book of Comfort, because it is so pastoral. Grace, even for you. I I can remember, memory upon memory of talking with folks who could so believe that God was a sufficient Savior and could forgive people of their vilest sin. And what was their hang-up? Can he forgive me of mine, though? Yes, he can. Absolutely he can. He delights to do so, actually. So, he's a personal Savior, and he is one that assures through the work of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit working in the heart, Uh, giving faith, doing this by the gospel, doing it in the inner man, doing it to you personally, not not a a group salvation kind of a thing, saving us also in a group, but also it's very, uh, faith would be on an individual level. But also to me, now what are the things that uh, I'm brought into a assured confidence by the Holy Spirit that I have received? He lists three. What would they be? We've, we've talked about half of them already. Remission of sin. How many of your sins, Liz? All of them. The little ones? The medium-sized ones. The misshapen ones. Yeah. All of them. Every last one. To such a degree that they won't haunt you on the last day. Like there's lots of things that get resurrected on the last day. Your sins won't be among them. That's a wonderful thought. That's a wonderful thought. What's the uh, second thing that we are assured of or brought into an assured confidence of? Bob. Everlasting righteousness. Now... Bob, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Does that mean that you are such a rock star Christian that your righteousness that you've worked out by sweat endures forever? It's not your righteousness, Bob. Whose righteousness would it be? Is that a really, really good full righteousness? Yeah. Does it endure forever? What if it stopped? 
would you be in trouble? <laughs> if it has a, a, like a shelf life of 10,000 years and then you're on your own, you're in trouble at 10,000 years in one second. But it doesn't. The righteousness that is worked or merited for you by your Savior will never wear out. It'll never be taken from you. You will always be clothed as that obedient son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when he looks at, when God looks at you, what does he see? Righteousness of Christ. That should stagger us, by the way. Like, it's, a, it's, it's, it's important to be like, you know, nuts and bolts of theology and salvation, like, that's really good. It's another thing to think like, but I'm a disobedient son. Yep, that's been forgiven and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that you shall always uh, have into eternity. The last one, we're convinced of salvation. Really, the, and that, that would be a quite a big collective word to talk about. All that God does to save us from our sin, from sin's guilt, from the consequences of hell, from wrath, and deliver us ultimately into heaven. It would involve union with Christ, it would involve our eternal inheritance, it would involve all that is in eternity, it would, it would summarize all of that, the resurrected body, um, the fading away or the passing away of sin and sin's presence and sin's guilt, all of that is what would be wrapped up in that one word, salvation. Now, what would such a uh, salvation, everlasting righteousness, remission of sin, and, and all of that, what does that cost us it says right there freely given so you didn't earn it we'd call that wages it's not called wages what would we uh, so so in one sense does salvation cost you anything in one sense we'd say no in another sense we'd say what We'd say everything. Now, we need to get our theology square on this. Does it cost me anything to get into salvation? No, it's free. It's a free gift of God. Now, resultantly that I'm in Christ, will it cost you everything? Yeah, but keep that very straight in your mind. There's a much difference between like purchasing and resulting. Does the way of following Christ include cross-bearing in this life? Yep. Did you say, I came to bring a sword and I came to separate sons from fathers, daughters from mothers? Mm-hmm. So, but make sure you keep that clean. It's not on the front side. It's on the resulting side. For God to save you, it, it cost him his son and his son's life. It did not cost you. Notice he gives it of grace, so it's not merited or earned. It's freely given. It's favor shown to not just neutral folks, but folks that deserved something quite different. Uh, so merely of grace, or uh, we, we use the word merely in like a diminutive form. Like, ah, it's merely this. What they mean is uh, only of grace. So it's not like, ah, it's just grace. Like, not that big a deal. Like, no, that's not what we mean. We mean it is entirely, or if we had to 
pick another banner solely of grace. No pun intended. Actually, I did intend it. So, it's by grace alone that God gives these things, and it's given for the sake of... Now, that's an odd way to end it. For the sake of Christ's merits. What on earth does that mean? I think we should take a journey over to Romans chapter 3 to find out. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, 25, and 26. What does it mean that all of this was done solely, only, for the sake of Christ's merits? Odd way of saying it. We are justified, verse 24, by his grace. That's right out of where we're looking at here. Say, by grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. Look at the means. By faith. So this is is all we've been looking at. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of of the one who has faith in Jesus. Back up just a little bit to the front of verse 26. What is it to show? Whose righteousness? Jesus's. All of that, all the salvation that we just talked about, salvation by faith, worked in the Spirit, Assuring you of things you can't see. Assuring your sins are forgiven. Assuring you that you have an eternal inheritance and a righteousness that will never fade. Assuring you that God really will save you. All all that is bound up there, freely given, all of grace. Whose righteousness does it shine forth and show? Christ. Wouldn't that be like the central banner there? The purple one? That you can't see because it's covered? Let me down, sound guys. Um, all glory to God. The faith that he's working, the salvation that he's working, the eternal righteousness that he's giving, all abounds to shine forth his goodness so that you and I will stand up forever as trophies of his grace and his patience. So he can say for an eternity like, Look how patient I am. There's Adam. There's Jason, Daniel. There, uh, look, at, look at these. And, and all creation will be like, really patient. My goodness. Those guys taxed your patience. Exactly right. Look at his kindness for undeserving sinners. He could use your names. People who didn't deserve salvation at all. And the salvation of, of you Isn't it staggering to think it gives glory and honor to Jesus Christ? Amazing. He does all of this for the glory of his own name. Notice the last question with this will will end. Uh, What are, I guess there's two more. Thankfully, I don't have any notes on them. So what is necessary for a Christian to believe? Answer, all things promised to us in the gospel. 
which you might be like, that's not helpful. I wanted a list and I could check the list off. Interesting, he talks about the gospel as a promise. That's fascinating to me. Does the gospel promise things? You better believe it does. Yeah, promises he saves all who call upon his name. Promises he is a sufficient savior. Promises that he can really blot out all of your sin and all of your guilt. Uh, Anticipating, well, what is all that is promised in the gospel? Uh, Question 23, what are these articles? And then who knows the name of what follows there? Oh, no, you looked at the bottom of the page and you saw it. The Apostles' Creed. Is the Apostles' Creed exhaustive? No, it's not the goal of creeds. If it was exhaustive, what would not have come to us years later? The Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed or others. Is it a really good statement of faith? Yes. Is it what Christians have confessed for millennia? Yes. And so uh, in keeping with uh, what uh, catechisms wanted to achieve, they kind of asked themselves, I think we've talked about this, but we probably forgot parts of it. They asked themselves with this question answer format of catechisms, what should every Christian know? Like what, I don't know, top three things. And they're like, uh, 10 commandments. You're like, ah, oh, that's hard to argue with that. That's good. And you're like, uh, Lord's prayer. Like, ah, oh, that's good too. Uh, Apostles creed. Yep. That's the, the, those are all really, really good. So, Guess what all of the main confessions address? Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. So the, conf- uh, the catechism will move on to look at each and every uh, aspect of the Apostles' Creed line by line. So the next time we have a filler Sunday school, you'll get Lord's Day 8. So let's pray, and then we will wrap things up. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you lavish on us in salvation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working faith in our hearts. We confess with the Father of Mark 9 that we do indeed believe, and we pray and plead with you to to help us in the ways in which we don't believe. We pray that we would trust our Savior more fully and be more assured of what is not seen. Father, please use even this Lord's Day and your word going forth this Lord's Day and the worship of your people in prayer to strengthen our faith. We pray that your spirit would be at work among us, that we would believe every one of your promises and not doubt one of them. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.